The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Stories are interesting things. Uh, stories have amazing power to shape and form us. Um, here in our country, we have a story, an Australian story, and that shapes the way we see ourselves, the way that we have values. Uh, if you think of like one of the key values of our culture is mateship and friendship. That's not just that someone one day thought up, hey, let's make that a value of the Australian culture. That value came out of the story of our nation. You have a story. Your family has a story. And, and these stories shape and mold us. They give us values. They highlight. They bring meaning. They bring structure to our lives. And so, too, for the people of God in the ancient of times, right? They have these stories which molded them, that shaped them. And it shaped particularly their understanding of God. And this, this story that you're going to enter into for a number of weeks is an amazing story. It's an incredible story. I encourage you, read the story. The story begins, as we're going to look at this week, with a party. It's an elaborate party. It ends with a party. And in fact, the book gets written down because of that party that you're going to see coming in the, in the future. It's called a feast called Purim. And, and uh, Pastor Jimmy will unpack sort of what that means and how it was celebrated, why it was important. And so part of what they do is at, at Purim is they actually go over this story of Esther and they go through it again and remind each other as to why they celebrate. Stories, parties are absolutely essential to this story. In fact, if you read the story, you're going to see that over and over and over again, heaps of like little reversals and different interactions happen around parties and feasts and celebrations. And so as you read it, keep, keep an idea. Every time you see something that comes up that's like, oh, this is another feast, there's another festival, no, the, the music's playing, the music's playing in the background to get your attention that something's about to happen, something important's about to happen, characters are about to meet. Uh, twists and turns are about to happen. This is actually one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible because it is such a cool story. And so I want to invite you to read it, enjoy it, come week in, week out to hear it and unpack it and see what God has for us. And in, in the, the writer who's writing this story, he intentionally wants to, to make this idea and point out to us that there is a contrast between kings and kingdoms. And you see this immediately in the story. And this will get unpacked and developed over and over and over again. And one of the ways the writer does this is creating contrast and using a whole lot of sarcasm and irony that we probably don't pick up. And I love that because it means that the person who wrote this was an Aussie. (laughs) Sarcasm is all throughout it and uh, we can really identify it. So let me set you the scene, okay? Uh, The story of Esther is near the end of the Old Testament. Okay, if you think about uh, the, the historical narrative of Genesis being right at the beginning, uh, this is the last book of the Old Testament. So the Esther, Malachi, this is like right near the end. And after this, we're going to have a, a gap and then Jesus is going to enter the scene. And so as the person is writing this, they're not just writing a story to tell us about history, but they're also writing a story to tell us about who is coming. And that's really, really important to understand, that that Esther is not just telling us the past, it's pointing to the future. The new king, the true king, who will 
come. And so it's right at the end. Okay, These guys have been uh, in exile, in Babylonian exile, for about 70 years. King Darius sends waves of people back from Babylon to start going back to Jerusalem. And so you read the book of Ezra and you see a wave of people are going back to start rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah, another wave have been sent back and they're going to start to rebuild the walls. And then what the, what the, the writer does is it kind of pivots from Jerusalem. Let's go back to Persia and let's focus on the people of God who remain there. And so that's kind of where the story begins. It kind of pans We're back in Persia, we're going to look at these Persian people, we're going to look at the Jewish people and God's people, and we're going to see what God is up to here. And so it wants to make this introduction of this particular king and this kingdom so that we would look forward to Jesus. So a few things I want you to see. Number one, I think the author wants us to see this powerful king. Okay, it starts off and it says this, it says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus... The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials, servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So immediately what the author wants to do is go, let's look at Ahasuerus. Now, for most of us, we're like, that's a really interesting name. Glad I did not call my son Ahasuerus. Uh, We're probably more familiar with his Greek name, which is Xerxes. Okay, if you've seen the movie 300, this is kind of focused around this particular king. But what the author wants to say is, wow, super powerful. Look at the rule. Look at the reign. And so it tells us that this king, Ahasuerus, rules over all of these provinces. So this is modern day, think Sudan, Pakistan, Egypt, Libya, Israel, Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and all the way through to Greece. He doesn't quite own Greece yet. But it's on his list. It's on his like to-do list. And the party that you're about to see that he throws is actually set up in a way so that he can start to actually convince these people that we're going to go take Greece. And so he is this ruling, reigning, massively powerful king. It says that he is sitting in Susa. So he had these, this is modern day Iran, he had these different palaces that he had set up over all of these places and all of these countries so that depending on the weather... Depending on the political climate, he would just move from one to the other. But what's consistent with all of them is that they're far away from the regular people and they're super up high. So he gets to just look down on everybody else. Don't come and interrupt me. I'm the high and lifted up one. I'm the Lord of Lords. I'm the King of Kings. Herodias, the Greek historian, tells us about the military at this time. He tells us that the Persian army at this time is around about 2 million people. Now, this is fascinating because Jesus was 2,000 years ago. This is like 2,500 years ago. The U.S. servicemen and women is not even at 2 million at this point in history. China is the only country in the world who currently has more than 2 million people serving in their army, naval, air force. So this is a massive kingdom. If you think about, like, contextually, the amount of people that are serving... Um, If you've seen the movie 300, you might know about the Immortals. The Immortals are a group of 10,000 elite warriors that are essentially Xerxes, Ahasuerus' bodyguard. Wherever he goes, they go. So every time he moves from one citadel to another, it's not just him and a couple of people going. It's him, his wider family, his key people, and 10,000 
soldiers of elite troops who come with him. They are his all-time bodyguards. That's pretty amazing. Uh, Herodotus tells us also that he has 2,000 horsemen and 2,000 lancers that travel with him everywhere he goes. That's 14,000 people. The point, he's big, he's powerful, he has a massive army. His throne is elaborate and enormous. And these these 10,000 immortal men, their job is to carry him on that throne. So every time they go to battle, yeah, he goes to battle, but he goes to battle getting carried on his massive throne. And so all these guys surround his throne and they carry him. And so he watches from a distance as all the army fight the battle for him. And he stands off a distance high and lifted up. And so he becomes this godlike figure. Untouchable, unbeatable, powerful. If anyone touches this king's throne, dead. If anyone walks on the rug in front of his throne, dead. If anyone doesn't bow before the throne, dead. This is an extremely highly powerful man. And so the writer wants you to see that and think that. Two, he's splendorous. He's a splendorous king. So Xerxes throws a party. Who here likes a party? A couple people? Okay. Look, we don't have a, a beach, so for us down in you know, North Lakes, a party is like, oh, this is, this is fun. Um, parties, parties when, you, when you throw a party, the party that you throw is reflective of you. I've been to weddings where there's been like two, three hundred people, there's a big spit, and there's just people everywhere, and, and then I've been to like weddings where it's like 30 people, and it's just intimate, small family. Neither right nor wrong. Just reflective of the couple, right? I once threw a party. It's probably the most embarrassing moment nearly of my entire life. Uh, it was a 21st party. Anyone here throw a 21st? Yeah, not like me, you didn't. Uh, so my 21st party, um, we had about 300 people. I hired out an uh, indoor cricket centre. I, I got a bunch of volunteers from my parents' church to, to build like a, a big hall walkway vortex thing so that people would come through and we just made it like this big space thing and so you'd have to walk through like this vortex with with like there was glimmery lights there was a person whose job for the whole night was just to do like the smoke machine in there Uh, I had two live bands Uh, we had like pool tables basketball courts Uh, everyone came in fancy dress Uh, it was amazing and then when everybody came and when the time was right I, I swung in from the, the cylinder, like from the roof, from the ceiling of the roof, dressed as the mask, right in between them all. And, and it was like this moment of like, I have arrived at my 21st party. It was, um, it was a really great party. Um, it's really embarrassing to look back at how insecure and uh, so self-focused and self-promoting I was. And uh, at, the mo- at the time, I thought everybody loved me and thought this was amazing. And I think everyone went home just going, wow, he's full of himself, I think. But parties reflect you, right? And that party reflected me when I was 21. Uh, now when I have my 50th coming up, it'll be me and my wife and my kids at a meal somewhere having a steak. <laughs> But this, this party reflects Ahasuerus. This party is going to show you and tell you things about him 
what he is like. And, and what the scene opens with, it says that he, he shows the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp, verse 4 says, of his greatness for many days. How many days? 180 days. My party went for about four hours. Uh, that was a lot. Uh, historians tell us that, that just the royals and those who we read in these verses would be about 15,000 people. So a party, at minimum, for 15,000, now you've got to add the immortals of 10,000, and the, so but it's a lot of people, and this is for 180 days. This is a six-month-long party. Anyone here had a big party? No, you have not. A Hashuerus' party? Very, very big. What's it, what's it saying? It's saying he is splendorous. He is wealthy. He can feed all of these people, house all of these people, look after all of these people. He is big. He is powerful. He is splendorous. He is rich and glorious and wealthy. This is a big party. It's also telling us that the kingdom at this point in time must be in a time of peace. There's no war. There's no threat. But Herodias, again, the ancient historian, tells us that during the six-month party was the, the strategy meeting for the invasion of Greece. If you know your history, eventually he's going to invade Greece and they will lose. But this is the plan. This is his way. I'm going to host a party. I'm going to throw the glamour at you. And then I'm going to call you to come to war and die for me. So Herodias says this is what was quoted by Xerxes. It says, for this cause I've now summoned you together, that I may impart to you my purpose. It is my intent to bridge the Hellespot and lead my army through Europe to Hellas, which is Greece, that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. You saw that Darius, my father, was minded to make an expedition against these men, but he is dead, and it was not granted to him to punish them, and I, on his and all the Persians' behalf, will never rest till I've taken and burnt Athens. As for you, this is how you should best please me. I've tried that line on my kids. It doesn't work. <laughs> when I declare the time for your coming, every one of you must appear and with all goodwill and whosoever comes with his army best equipped shall receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among us. So why does he throw the party? To show himself off? And then to manipulate a bunch of men to go to war and die for him and his purposes. This is King Hashuerus. And so look at the extravagance. The extravagance. It says there, there are these white cotton curtains with violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver. How many people are there? How many couches are there? Some of you have, have built homes or moved homes and bought homes. How much time did you spend thinking about the rods and the curtains that you might have? He has purple. For us, we all know the color purple. In this day, most people have never seen the color purple in their lives. The only time they get to see it is when they get it. It's its, its whole own industry. You just went through the book of Philippians. Paul meets a woman named Lydia. And what is her business in? The color purple. Right, purple is it's this like elegant, immaculate, and so people are walking in and they're seeing purple for the first time. They're they're literally sitting in gold couches. It says that they drink verse seven from golden vessels, 
vessels of different kinds. So they're drinking out of golden... How many golden goblets are there for 15 to 20 odd thousand people to drink from? And for how many days? Do you see the author is trying to, to put up... This is the powerful king. This is a splendorous king. But then here comes the irony. So immediately after setting that up, now the author's going to go, but let me, let me show you what this king's really like. So this powerful king, the one who's supposed to be in control of all things, is actually out of control. Power in and of itself is not evil. Power, influence, is morally neutral. Power is like a dog. A dog can bring great joy. But within a dog, it can also bring great harm. What determines that is its owner and how it raises and treats that dog. Power is like that. Power can be used for great good, but it can also be used for great evil depending on the owner. And here is a man who has power, but he is completely out of control. Verse 10, it tells us straight away, on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. In other words, he is drunk as drunk can be. So you have wine, you have good wine, and then you have royal wine. So this is a party going on for 180 days, and they are going to drink, and they are going to drink, and they are going to drink, and they will be drunk. And that's actually intentional from Persian strategic planning. This is weird. This is how Persians thought in terms of strategy. What we do is we, this is no lie, this is true historical fact. What we do is we all just drink and drink and drink. We get super drunk. We throw out ideas. We make decisions. And then we'll come back at a later date when we're no longer drunk and go, were those decisions good? If those two things line up, then we do it. So here we are. We're going to get super drunk. I'm going to call everyone to go to war. Everyone's going to go, yeah, let's go to war. And we'll come back at a later date and go, hey, when we were drunk, we thought going to war was good. Is it good? So this is normal for them. They will drink and get drunk. And I know that you and I think that our culture gets drunk. They get drunk. This man himself is drunk. And now he's making plans. So he is not in control of himself. The story then tells us he's not also in control of his wife. And nor should he. Verse 12 says, But Queen Vashti refuses to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. So what he does is he comes out, he gets drunk, and then he says, Hey, lovely, lovely queen, why don't you come out and let me put you on display in front of all of the the drunken men? And his wife says no. Now, if you know anything about King Ahasuerus, no one says no. So what the author is doing is the author is saying, yeah, he's this... So-called powerful guy, but he himself can't control himself. He's drunk. And here he has his wife, who in, in, in the eyes of the Persians, he says something, she does something. In fact, in the story, she's never called his wife. She's just called Queen Vashti. And she says, no, I will not be your sexualized, objectified woman at your party. I will not. The people who are reading this go, whoa. She said, what? She dead. Big powerful man is being emasculated in front of everybody. He is not in control. Christians, can we just do a quick detour? 
The only type of control that we see in the Bible that is called good is self-control. We are not to control our spouses. We are not to try and have control of people. People are not objects and pawns to be used for our different schemes. People are image bearers of the living God who we are supposed to love and embrace and serve. Even my children who God has given me authority over, I'm not to control them. I'm to train them and equip them and lead them as best I can, but not to control. And you can tell when I'm struggling with that because my voice changes. Why won't you do what I say? It also goes on and says, and because of this, anger burned within him. He's drunk, can't control himself, can't control his wife. His anger is consuming him. And then in, in the most ironic and humorous, sarcastic way, the writer says, and he's not even in control of his kingdom. So verse 13 says, And the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him. And he says to them, According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Hashuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Now, we don't pick this up, but the author is like sarcastic. He looks like he rules. He looks like he's in control. He has no control because even in this, he has to go to the men, the other men, and go, she won't be a part of my plan. I, I wish to bring her in front of everybody and objectify her, and she said no. Like, what, what am I going to do, guys? Do you see the sarcasm? It's intentionally supposed to show this, this powerful king is not in control. He thinks he's in control. He looks like he's in control. He is not in control. And then it also wants to show us that this splendorous king is deeply insecure. Is this not like our culture? To have everything on the outside say who we are. Look at how I look. You guys, particularly up on the coast, in, in North Lakes, like, you know, we're pretty secure. But up here, I mean, you know, got, you've, got to, you've got to look a certain way. You've got to dress a certain way. I mean, people like me, we don't really fit up here because I can't get a tan. I just burn and then peel. And so that's why we stay, stay in Brisbane. You've got to drive a certain car. You've got to live in a certain place. You've got to have a certain career. This is our culture. It's all external. It's all pomp. It's all look at me because deep down inside, I am absolutely insecure. I need to put all of these things on the outside and show you all and have a 21st party where you swing in a rope and you're like, hi, everyone. I'm totally insecure. And 300 people at your party and go, that's the most insecure person at this party, but let's just make him feel like it was a great party. This king is so insecure. You see it by the self-promotion. He is just trying to show everybody, look, worship me, serve me, follow me. Why? Look at all the things that I have. He, he uses all of his stuff for manipulation. He doesn't have the confidence that he can come up to people in his kingdom and they actually respect him enough where he could say, hey, I think we should do this and they would listen. 
He has to do 180 days of manipulation before they might even say yes to going to war. Because he knows nobody respects him. They have to. They don't want to. And so he's full of self-promotion because deeply insecure on the inside. His insecurity, you see this by the eunuchs. So here, here he is. He has this, this wonderful, beautiful wife named Vashti who he's kind of, on one hand, bringing her to the forefront and objectifying, but on the other hand, he's deeply insecure, so he will only allow those eunuchs to serve around her. I'll leave that there. Put those things together as to why that is. He is so insecure. He can't, he's worried about any man being near him or his wife. He is deeply insecure. Insecure, And then you see the insecurity in his response and the men's response. What are they worried about in this situation? They are worried about their reputation. What are we going to do? Because as soon as others hear about the fact that Vashti said no, well, what's that going to lead to? Well, my reputation is going to go bad. And then also, this, you've got to really be careful about this. Okay, other women might see that and then they might do a similar thing. Do you see the insecurity? We're so worried about everything out there. So he says, For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. When you're insecure, you will find anything to control that you can to make yourself feel secure. As someone who struggles regularly with anxiety... One of the things that I have had to learn to do is when I'm, when I'm about to kind of escalate, I have to find something that I can control and touch and have a hand on and start to bring myself down. And so what you're taught to do is when you're insecure, find the smallest thing and squeeze and hold and touch and get control. This is what everybody that is insecure do. So if you, if you have someone in the workplace or someone that you've been with who you see is controlling, it's pointing to the fact that they are deeply insecure. They will micromanage like crazy. Why? Because they need to be in control. I can be like this sometimes in my home where things start to get out of control. Keys. Keys aren't where keys need to be. Keys need to be there. And wallets need to be there. And kids' hats need to be there. And I have, like, I have this system and this ordered thing. And as soon as, as, soon as that gets unordered, ah, oh, me out of control. Me go into control mode. Me start to get order. And what is that? That's a sense of I start to feel insecure and I need to bring it back in. So this, this man, this king, is so out of control. The only way he feels in control is if he controls everybody else. That's this king. This splendorous king is insecure. And so what do these guys say? They say, if it pleases the king, verse 19... Let a royal order go out from him. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repeated that Vashti is never again to come before the king. Let everyone know she will never come back and stand before me. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made the king, made by the king is proclaimed throughout all of his kingdom for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. Do you see the irony? This powerful king, the one who's supposed to have all this control, is so out of control. And this splendorous king, 
who's got everything you could think of, is deeply insecure. So the writer is intentionally putting all of this irony here so that we would then ask, well, is there any other king? And what about the king of the Jews? Do they have a king? And what is this king like? One question that comes up is like, well, where's God in the story of Esther? And if you know the history of Esther, the word God is never mentioned in the entire book. It's the only book of the Bible where God is not referenced. And as you hear this unfolding story over and over and over again, the question that is supposed to arise as you read it is, where is God? Where is another king, a better king? Is there one? Because this king is ungodly. This king is not a good king. And this leads us to our own questions of, well, where is God now in my life? I'm going through all of these things. I have these experiences. Where's God for me? In the same way that as you read it for the Jews, it's supposed to cause you to reflect upon your own walk with God and go, well, where is God in my story? Is God in my story? Because in this story, you don't see an angel. You don't see a miracle. You don't see anything that's sort of external and powerful. There's no audible voice in this story. There is no sense in which God is upfront out in the open and bold. But what we do see, and this is my final point, is that the true king is the one unseen, unheard, unfelt, and is yet present, speaking and moving on behalf of his people. And the reason why I love the book of Esther is because that's actually probably more like most of our stories with God. Is we don't see Angels and have angelic experiences. We, we, we haven't experienced the parting of the Red Sea. We don't hear an audible voice. We don't have a star that we're following. We don't have a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. For most of us, we never see God. We don't hear God. But God is everywhere. And God is speaking. And God is moving. And God is acting. And the reason why I love this story is because it keeps alluding to the fact that God is on the move. That God is actioning things. God is not absent. God is not distant. He is present in the unseen and in the unheard. You will see throughout this story so many moments over and over again where it will say something along the lines of, it just so happens, a.k.a. God. Every time you read something like, ooh, and there's a twist, that's God. That's God moving and orchestrating behind the scenes, in the shadows. God is moving. And this really comes up for the Jews when they would hear this, where it says that Vashti is never again to come before the king Ahasuerus. And it says, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. For the Jewish people who have now passed the end of Esther and they're revisiting the story, they know what that means. That is an illusion. God's moving. God's up to something. As King Ahasuerus is making decisions, he's a king. King Jesus, King God is making decisions. God's orchestrating. As this king is moving and manipulating, so is this God. That one's doing it for evil. This one's going to be doing it for good. 
And you'll see this over and over and over and over again. So when, when we hear that this, like this little line here, what, what the, the first sort of Jews who would be celebrating and, and hearing this is they would be thinking that this, this uncontrollable, egotistical tyrant king begins to act in heinous and evil ways, but our unseen king begins to move in the shadows and bring about his glorious goodness to his people. And so you... In the 21st century, up here at Calandra, you're supposed to read this story of Esther and it should encourage your heart and soul to go, I don't see God right now in my story. I've lost my job or this is happening with my family. I don't know what God's doing. And we're supposed to pick up the book and read it and go, oh, this is how God always acts. It's actually rare that God acts in the open. That's why we call it miraculous, because that's not the norm. God can and God does, but mostly he's working in and through what we call providence. And so God's going to work through key people and key decision makers, and he is going to bring about his plan and his kingdom. And the story starts with this king of Xerxes, so it would force you and I to look and go, that's Xerxes, that's Ahasuerus, who's our king? And I want to finish by just pointing to a few things about Jesus who contrasts with King Xerxes because after Esther, we then move into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Jesus is coming. So just think about these as I finish. Xerxes sits on his throne seeking to be served. Jesus will come and leave his throne to serve all. Xerxes sends his people to war and they will lose. And because they lose, he loses. Jesus himself will go to war and he wins. And because he wins, his people win. Do you see the contrast? Xerxes will bring you into his kingdom through domination. Jesus will bring us into his kingdom through love and grace. Xerxes builds up his temple and his throne for himself so that he would be away from the people looking down on the people. Jesus builds his temple so that he can be present with his people. And in fact, he goes further and he makes his dwelling within his people so that they become his very temple. Xerxes will invite you into his presence very occasionally and only so that he can judge you and tell you what to do. Jesus invites you into his presence at any time and he says, come like a child. For anything, for your needs, come Xerxes puts the weight of his kingdom onto the people. Jesus takes the weight and puts it on himself. Xerxes lays down everyone else's life for his own sake. Jesus will lay down his life for the sake of everybody else. Xerxes will rule a kingdom which has a party for six months. Jesus is going to have a party that lasts for all eternity. If we think a 180-day party would be great, You wait. It's going to be incredible. And Xerxes leads a kingdom in which it looks like he's in control. But he isn't. The great paradox, Karen Job says, listen to this, this is important. The great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present everywhere God is most capriciously absent. The great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present everywhere God is most conspicuously absent. In other words, look at your life 
And if you're asking the question right now, where is God? The answer to that question is right there. He is unseen. He is unheard. He is unfelt. But he is there. He is active. He is speaking. He is moving because that's what God has always done and that is what God will always do. And so the the author in this story wants to go, okay, church, whose kingdom are you a part of? Who is your king? Trust him. Trust him. Some of you right now, you're doing fine and everything's good, but one day it won't be. Trust him. You can have questions, where is God? Trust him. He's there. I've had this. I will have this again. Well, I'll ask the question, God, where are you? And the story of Esther was written for you and for me to say, I am there with you. Whether you see me, whether you feel me, I'm there. Because I'm the good king. And I come to my people and I'm present with my people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.